Belief in the authority of the scriptures. Belief that prayer is really answered. Belief in family and marriage as an eternal institution. Belief in the integrity and, and the worth of America's great men. These beliefs laid the groundwork for producing more great men. For many a small boy figured, if that man could do it, if he could overcome the limitations of his life, if he could go on and make something great of himself, then I can too. And we were not alone in our idealism because here in New Zealand, I rather imagine that in the colonist cabins and in the Maori meeting houses, the stories of men like Captain Cook, the explorer, Octavius Hadfield, the missionary, Lieutenant General Hobson, father of the Waitangi Treaty, and Governor George Gray, who saved the colony from collapse and shaped its policy. Stories of these men were told and retold and became the models for many boys who were to become men of stature in New Zealand in the years that followed. But in our country there dawned the day when the pictures of Washington and Lincoln did not fit into our concept of modern decor and neither did the old family Bible. It looked embarrassingly out of place beside the surrealistic paintings of the day and so the pictures and the Bibles were relegated to the attic of forgotten things. There went with them some of the most stabilizing influences of American life. We had become a more sophisticated people, a little hard-boiled, just a little blasé, frankly skeptical, skeptical of old-fashioned sentimentalism, and along with our higher education came the debunking process. It was smarter to revile than it was to revere. It seemed to be more in mode to depreciate than to appreciate. And in our classrooms at all levels of education, no longer did we laud great men, but rather we began to take their measure and to parrot out their faults. And we began to take the position, well, obviously God did not send them for a special purpose. They were just men of their times, creatures of their environment. But we fail to realize that when we began to deny the existence of great men, at the same time, we began to not deny the value of great men. In this day of investigative journalism and muck-racking historical research, that seems to have a nose primarily for the negative. Heroes seem to be a virtual impossibility. Exposés during the past few decades seem to allege that virtually all of our national leaders <clears throat> had sordid sex lives or had taken or had given money under the table or have some other weakness that is now subjected to the pitiless publicity of the press, the slick magazines and television. I noticed just recently in one of your New Zealand leading newspapers that Captain Cook's memory and accomplishment and lifestyle was attacked in a shabby manner. So now we have many children grown up without the guiding star of the examples of great men, holding in their hands only a bunch of bedraggled question marks with no keys with which to open the doors of knowledge and life. 
The young no longer have any particular ambition to be great. Their ambition now is to make money as quickly as possible in whatever way is most convenient or in the alternative to live the easy life with all of its conveniences and none of its responsibility and to do it as painlessly as possible. But why all the debunking? Well, one contributing factor may be that after years of men with that kind of talent, and most of them young men, who launched our republic, since then too many of them have had to be warriors. Two world wars with wars in between have taken their toll of our idealism. Deep in our hearts we knew that as much as we admired war heroes, that this was not the deepest and the greatest heroism. New Zealand's history in this arena is one which any nation could well be proud of. Back in 1899, when the South African discord erupted known as the Boer War, New Zealand promptly offered troops to the aid of Britain. History shows that the New Zealanders were extremely fit and hearty and willing for anything. When Britain declared war on Germany in 1914, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, then an independent country, cabled Britain and said, All we are and all we have is at the disposal of the British government. You sent more than 100,000 men, 40% of all those eligible to go for service, from a population of 1,145,000. Of that number, 16,700 gave their lives in overseas service. During World War II and the two years that followed the, the Battle of El Alamein, the New Zealand New Zealanders were in so much action that it seemed that if somebody up on top was saying, if it's a tough job, let's send the New Zealanders to do it. Not to say that the other troops didn't do the work. But the facts are that during the North African campaign and on into Italy, there was no division in the Allied armies that saw as much action as the New Zealand division. Much of it was violent and protracted and exhausting, but most of those were successful campaigns. I cannot pass without mentioning uh, Gallipoli, the battle at the Gallipoli Peninsula. This is when the battle was for the capture of Constantinople, which is now known as Istanbul, Turkey, to secure the Dardanelles so ships could continue to pass through. Very little was known about the terrain. The mapping was... Uh, inconclusive and on one cold April night infantrymen were loaded into barges and the barges were let loose to go down the tide and as they came down the coast and the dawn broke out and they began to move towards the coast they found that instead of a flat land which they anticipated there were high cliffs and up on the top of these cliffs were the Turkish soldiers and they began to rain down on them fire from on top and throwing down grenades and very shortly the water became uh, stained with the blood of the wounded and those who had died. The New Zealanders and the Australians hit the beaches. And someone gave the command to attack. And they did. And they fought and clung and scraped their way to the top and threw back the Turkish soldiers. Little wonder that New Zealanders historically have had the reputation of being famous fighting men. I really must mention Captain Charles H. Epham, the only New Zealander to win the Victoria Cross twice. Only three men in the history of the world have ever done that. 
The first citation reads this way. On May the 22nd, 1941, Second Lieutenant Upham fought his way forward 3,000 yards at Malmey, and his platoon destroyed numerous enemy posts. When his company withdrew from Malmey, he carried back a wounded man under fire and also guided back a company which had been isolated. During the next two days, his platoon held an exposed position under fire. Blown over by a mortar shell, painfully wounded in the shoulder by shrapnel, with a bullet in his foot, he remained on duty. At Galatos on the 25th of May, his platoon killed 40 Germans, forcing an enemy back. Ordered to retire, he sent his platoon back, and when fired on by two Germans, he shammed dead. Only able to use one arm, he killed them. On May the 30th at Spakia, he cleverly fought off an enemy attack, killing 22 Germans at a range of 500 yards. Lieutenant Upham was reluctant to receive either award. Listen to what he said. Naturally, I feel some pride in this distinction, but hundreds of others have done more than I did. They could have given it to one of them. Later, you people here in New Zealand tried to buy him a farm as a reward, but he refused it and asked that the money be used for the benefit of the children of servicemen, his reply in part reads, The military honors bestowed upon me are the property of the men of my units as well as myself and were obtained at considerable cost of the blood of this country. In no circumstances would I consent to any material gain for myself or any service that I, in conjunction with the 100,000 more, rendered to the empire in her hour of peril. And I most humbly request that you will understand. This, as you all know only too well, was a war for survival. And if we had not had wholehearted support from all members of the empire, we would not have attained victory over our enemies. From these wars, men returned as heroes. I know in our country, they marched down Broadway amidst the bands playing and ticker tape showers coming down from buildings. And I expect that here in New Zealand, much of that same thing happened. But unfortunately, those men who came back as heroes from the war, many have ended up as human derelicts, drinking themselves into oblivion. What went wrong? We certainly cannot uh, have enough information to, uh, to draw the facts, but we can make some observations, such as it's what one does after the bands stop playing and the parade is over. That counts. When the shouting has died, what then? For character is what a person does when he is alone. The decision he makes when he's away from the persuasion of his friends. You know, I'm still one who believes that there are some principles worth fighting for. And if necessary, worth dying for. I offered my life to my country in World War II in Europe as a reconnaissance platoon leader in an armored division of General Patton's Third Army and would gladly offer my life again if it became necessary. The trouble of our time is that when people can't believe there's anything left to us worth dying for, then we're not sure there's anything worth living for either. As a Christian, I find myself on the horns of a terrible dilemma. 
We all hate war. We loathe it. We know it's against every teaching and ethic of Christ. And yet I also feel that there are certain qualities and certain liberties, certain precious heritages for which a man should be willing to fight and even dare to die. I cannot reconcile these two positions. I don't even try to. I don't believe there is a reconciliation in this present blundering and bleeding world in which we find ourselves. But today, American and America and New Zealand need great men on the battlefield of everyday life, in our homes, in our schools, in our universities, in the offices and factories who can lead us back towards idealism, for time is running out for us. Both of our countries are plagued by continual industrial strikes, betrayed and exploited by political expediency, disintegrated by a steady and ever-decreasing divorce rate, weakened and sickened by lewdness and immorality and pornography and illegitimacy, torn by political hatreds and now racial hatreds. But I know this. And it must be repeated over and over again. No nation ever made progress by going in a downward direction. No people ever became greater by lowering their moral standards, least of all by changing laws to suit the lower standards. No society was ever enriched or improved by a looser morality. Have we fought two world wars and many actions since? only to slip back into the suicidal path of apathy and materialism and the decay that is eating away the foundation of our Christian civilization in this vast slaughterhouse we call the world that's reeking with a stench of human blood and, and stark with hunger and despair? Well, where are the heroes today? And who are they? Look around. In our country, they're the leaders of the women's equals right amendment fight the football gladiators who are operating on the turf and on the tube the rock singers the rock groups the gay leaders the rebels against society little wonder we ask where are the great men today here's some lessons we can learn from the scripture as to where great men come from. What it is that produces courage. What happens when you find cowardice? What are the results? And what are the results of courage? Where does it come from? Perhaps in the context of the scripture tonight, in the few minutes we have left, we can find some of those answers. In the 13th chapter of Num Numbers, Moses selected 12 men to go in and spy out the land. These were not ordinary men. They were the 12 tribal leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. They had three objectives when he sent them into the promised land. One, spy out the land. Two, bring back some fruit. Three, be of good courage. These men traveled for 40 days, traveled about 80 miles. They came back to give the report. Ten of them said, we cannot take the land. It is full of giants. They will eat us up. 
They, they wept. The people complained against Aaron and Moses. They were afraid, discouraged, defeated in their minds. They wanted to return to Egypt. Then came the minority report from Joshua and Caleb. Here's what they said. It's a good land. God will bring us into it. A land which flows with milk and honey. Don't rebel against God and don't fear the people, for they are bread for us. What they said in, the fact, in effect was, listen, these people are a piece of cake for us. Let's go get them. And the people talked of stoning them. And God said to Moses, I'll destroy this whole bunch and start over with you and build a great nation. Moses said, no, Father, if you're going to do that, wipe my name out of your book too. He said, okay, then in the alternative, the first thing I'm going to do is kill those ten that brought that bad report. And he struck them with a plague. You know, I really hadn't seen that till this year as I was reading through the Scripture. And I ran across it and saw that these ten men who had brought that evil report were killed by a plague while Joshua and Caleb were spared. And I said to myself, Hark, here is a spiritual truth. You better be careful about bringing a bad report. It may be injurious to your health. <laughs> God said, therefore, for every day that you were in the, the promised land spying it out, you're going to spend a year in the wilderness wandering, and they did. But why did Joshua and Caleb have a different view of the circumstances? Interesting question. They had seen the power and majesty of God displayed in Egypt, the plagues which God had imposed on Pharaoh, but so had the other people. They had seen the power and majesty of God displayed in the wilderness. They'd seen the, the rock give up water. They'd seen manna be provided from heaven. But so had the people. They, with the rest of the children of Israel, had experienced God's self-revelation to them in leading them out. They had experienced the covenant and promise of God given in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. They'd seen that it was, it was reinstituted at the burning bush. But everybody had seen that. What made Caleb and Joshua different? Two things. In Numbers 14, 24, the Bible says, God speaking, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. He had another spirit. I pray God that he might raise up in this great nation Men and women who have another spirit. Not the spirit of defeatism. Not the spirit of apathy. Not the spirit of self-satisfaction. But whatever other spirit it was Caleb had. And I don't know what it was. But I pray God whatever it was it might fall upon us. And that here in this great land there will be people of another spirit who will wholly follow the Lord. In order that he might bring us into the promised land. And Joshua God bless him. I know where Joshua got his. Moses trained him. And somehow the faith that Moses had in God had, had fallen off onto Joshua. And Joshua was willing to believe God. Well, where does courage come from? Let me suggest six sources quickly. One is God's promised presence. If you really believe that God is with you, courage is not a difficult thing. Because one plus God makes a majority any place. In Joshua 1.5, God said, As I was with Moses, 
So I will be with you, so be strong and of good courage. Verse 9 of that same chapter, Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. One night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to himself and the other one to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand, and then he noticed that many times along the path of his life there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in his life. That really bothered him. And he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand why in times when I needed you most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, my precious child, I love you and would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Secondly, being in the Word of God. In Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8, Only be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. And this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou wake th make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. It could say, and then you will be courageous. Third, obeying the word of God. Time and again, God said, because my servant Caleb holy followed me, Men who have wholehearted obedience generally have undaunted courage. Fourth, maintaining a heavenly perspective, knowing the outcome of the ball game while you're still in the middle of it will produce courage. Five, recognizing the available power. You remember the story and over in 2 Kings, the sixth chapter, the king of Syria was planning attacks against the king of Israel. And, and every time he would decide to attack in a certain place, there was a prophet sitting up in Israel whose name was Elisha. And Elisha would go to the king of Israel and say, Don't you go to such and such a place because the king of Syria is going to be there. And the king of Syria came to get him not once or twice, the Bible says. I take it that means that he came several times with the same results. And finally, one day in his court he said, Who among us is the traitor? That's sort of a loose translation. And... Uh, Said, nobody, king, said, we're not thinking out on you. But there's a prophet up in Israel, and every time you make a plan, even in your bedchamber, he knows of it and tells the king of Israel. The king of Syria said, well, where is he? He said, why, he resideth at Dothan. And so the Syrian uh, king sends his army, and they surround Dothan. And the next morning, Elisha's servant gets up, and he looks out. And every place he looks, 
he sees the Syrian army completely encircling Dothan. And he goes and wakes up Elisha. Hey, boss, get up. We're in trouble. In trouble? What, what's the problem, son? Oh, he said, the Syrian army is surrounding the town. Oh, he said. Gets up, walks out, and looks the situation over. And he said, well, I'll tell you. He said, it's a big army. But he said, greater are those that are with us than those that are with them. I imagine the young man thought, well, the old man's finally run off his trolley. <laughs> the pressure got too great and he went over the cliff. Elisha prayed a very simple prayer. He said, God, open the young man's eyes. And the young man's eyes were open and he looked. And the mountains surrounding Dothan were filled with the army and the fiery chariots of God. Elijah prayed another very simple prayer. Lord, strike them blind. And the whole Syrian army went blind instantaneously. And he went out to the commander and said, Say, you're in the wrong place. That matter of fact, if you'll follow me, I'll take you to the man you're looking for and take you to the place. And he took the whole Syrian army and led them right into the middle of the Israeli army. And then their eyes were opened and there they were. And the king of Israel said, Father, shall we kill them? And he said, you'd kill people that you haven't taken with your, so with your bow and with your sword? He said, no, no. He said, what you do is minister to them and you feed them. And you give them something to drink and you send them back. And he did it. And the scripture says, the Syrian king no longer attacked Israel. I can understand that. <laughs> you know, he might have been a little dumb, but he wasn't totally stupid. <laughs> but one of the things that produces courage is recognizing the available power do we really believe that when Jesus said, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth, he meant it? Or was that just some kind of a pious platitude to make us feel better? Listen, beloved. Six. Courage is inherited from the man who trains you. Courage is caught, oftentimes more than taught. Courageous men produce courageous men. Seventhly, Courage comes from having faith in a cause. Look at Elijah on Mount Carmel when he had that deal with the 400 prophets of Baal. Elijah knew that he was laying his life on the line, 400 to 1. But he was willing to do it because he believed God. He had faith in the cause that God had called him to. Some years ago, an ocean liner was wrecked on a dangerous reef off the New England coast of our country. The Coast Guard is well officered there. They went to the rescue under the captaincy of an old seaman, but with a few inexperienced young men on the crew. One of the youngsters turned a white face to the captain saying, Sir, the wind is offshore. The tide is running out. We can go out, but we cannot come back in. All the captain said was, Launch the boat. We have to go out. We do not have to come back in. That's faith. In a cause. 
Well, what are some of the hindrances to courage? I mentioned eight briefly. One is fatigue. Remember when Elijah had had the great victory over the prophets of Baal and he came running down to the city, running ahead of the chariot of the king and got down there and Jezebel, that wicked queen, said, I'm going to make you like one of my prophets before the sun goes down. And he ran off out in the desert, hid under the juniper tree, and he said, Oh, God, I'm the only one left. They're trying to take my life. God said, You just don't have the picture. Bowed their knee to Baal. But one of the reasons that he fled from Jezebel was because he was just plain tired. And I'll tell you, a tired man, it's difficult for him to be a courageous man. It's a hindrance. Secondly, uncommitted and half-heartedness produces a lack of courage. And then a lack of moral fiber. In Romans 12, 2, J.B. Phillips says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And boy, how that happens to us. There's a story of a bunch of wild pigs on an island of the Mississippi River Delta down in our country. Many years ago, a drove of wild pigs lived in the big bend of the Okamulgee River in Georgia. They had survived floods and fires and freezes and hunters and droughts. And hunters bragged when their dogs went down and fought the pigs and came out alive. Finally, a one gallus stranger. Do you know what a gallus is? You don't know what a gallus is. You know, there's these things you wear over your shoulder that hold your pants up. I think you call them braces, don't you? Well, we, we, we usually call them suspenders, but down in the poor country, they call them galluses. And when you're really poor, you, get, you don't have two galluses, you just have one. And it goes from over here, sort of across here and down over here to grab on this other side and sort of hold them up at half mast, you know. Well, that's what they're talking about here. Finally, a one gallus stranger came by the country store on the river road and asked how he could find the wild pigs. All he had with him was a one-horse wagon, an axe, a lantern, some quilts, some maize, and a single-barrel shotgun. Several months later, the pig-hunting stranger came back to the same store and asked for help to bring out the wild pigs. He said he had them all over in a pen in the swamp. When the word spread, people came from miles around to see the captive pigs, which all the natives knew could not be captured. It's all very simple, groaned the one gallus man. First, I put out some maize. For three weeks, they wouldn't eat it. Then some of the young'uns grabbed an ear here and there and scampered to the underbrush. Soon they were all eating it. If one didn't, he knew the others would. So then I began building a pen around the corn a little higher each day. Before long, I, I noticed they were all waiting for me to bring the maize and had stopped grubbing for acorns and roots. I built the trap door. Naturally, they raised cane when they seen I had them. But I can pin any animal on the face of the earth if I can first get him to depend on a free handout. Fellow pigs, We've been fenced. We accept that which we have not earned in the form of government handouts. Handouts for our children, education, subsidized housing, subsidized interest rates, subsidized food stuff, whether it be wheat or maize or milk or beer or food stamps in our country, social security or a guaranteed retired income. 
And as we get more and more used to it, and as we accept more and more of it, our independence and our self-esteem slips lower and lower until we, like the pigs, are fenced in and captured to become the vassals of the government which we have created and voted for. There's a danger in our country that soon the drones will outnumber the working bees. When that happens, the working bees will quit and we can all be poor together. Hmm. How do you like that story? Isn't that a good one? Almost too true. Too true. Well, another thing that hinders courage is a grasshopper mentality. The people said, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. And that's the way we look to ourselves. Those are the people who are problem-oriented instead of solution-oriented. Fifthly, a slave mentality. Continually going back to the old bondages, whether it be the bondage to anger or to self-pity or to the lust of indulgence, whatever it is, continually going back to it, back to the leeks and garlic of Egypt, not realizing that God has said, I am the Lord thy God which brought brought thee out of Egypt with the intention that you be slaves no longer. I have broken your bonds and will make you walk with dignity. The sixth one is fear. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And fear leads to discouragement. And discouragement is sin. One of life's greatest blunders is to become discouraged. When we yield to discouragement, we really distrust God. And we know that distrusting God is sin. It's not a sin to be tempted to become discouraged, but it is a sin to give in to it. If we fall, we don't have to stay down. We can get up. The people who win are the ones who get up one more time than they're knocked down. What the enemy wants us to do is to lay down the cross. Never lay down the cross. He would point out our discouragements and he would, he would magnify our failures and our weaknesses and he would make us sensitive to the criticism of others and he'll bluff us into laying down the cross if he can. When we lay down the cross, we're really in trouble. No cross, no crown. Keep on doing the hard things. Keep climbing no matter how tough it gets. Steel is built into the character in just such an atmosphere as that. You know, the Bible says endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Soldiers don't give up. They endure hardness. And one day, if you do, you'll awaken to the fact that the hardest places of your lives were the places of greatest blessing and greatest growth. The hardest going makes for the fastest growing. In these struggles, you'll learn some wonderful lessons which you can pass on to others and eventually uh, other lives will be inspired by, by you. Keep pushing ahead, pray and trust and take up every cross no matter how hard. Great things are up ahead. Never give way to discouragement. Seven, unbelief. Eight, rebellion. Back to the children of Israel. When Joshua and Caleb made their plea, they said, Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. You see, rebellion is in whatever form it comes, and against whomever is directed is a destroyer of courage. Or what are some of the results of cowardice? Back to the children of Israel and their story. Cowardice led to disobedience, defeat, despair, discouragement, and eventually death. A destroyed self-image, a lifetime of regretting what might have been. Listen to this little poem. It isn't the things you do, friend. It's the things you've left undone which give you a bit of heartache at the setting of the sun. 
the tender word forgotten, the letter you did not write, the flower you might have sent, friend, or your haunting ghost tonight, the stone you might have lifted out of a brother's way, the bit of heartsome counsel you were hurried too much to say, the loving touch of a hand, friend, the gentle and winsome tone that you had no time or thought for with troubles enough of your own, the little acts of kindness so easily out of mind, those chances to be angels which every mortal finds. They come in night and silence, each chill, reproachful wraith, when hope is faint and flagging and a, a blight has dropped on faith. For life is all too short, friend, and sorrow is all too great to suffer our slow compassion that carries until too late. It's not the thing you do, friend. It's the thing that you've left undone which gives you the bit of heartache at the setting of the sun. Well, what are some of the results of courage? Let's take a look at that. One result is leadership and strength. Historically, one of the great mountain peaks of human courage and bravery was during the war between the Spartans and the king of Persia. A strange story to tell, but a group of 300 Spartan warriors held a fighting army of 5,285,000 Persians at bay for three days. They did this at the Pass of Thermopylae at the time of Xerxes I, the king of Persia, when his horde of followers invaded Greece. You can believe that that was not a successful invasion. Another result is divine strength. Not long ago, a group of East German Christian students came out of Germany into West Germany. They were led by eight pastors who had just been let out of jail. They came to have a little retreat, such as we're having here in West Germany, and one of the things they discussed was, what are we going to do about the edict that the government has given us? And the government told them this, students, you must give up your membership in the church youth group. If you do not do it, you will not be able to sit for your final exams, which means you will not be able to go to university, which means you will not be able to, to follow and fulfill the life goal that you set for yourself. You will not be able to get the jobs that you want, but you must give up your membership in the church youth group. Some of the pastors, some of the elders who came along counseled them to give up that membership. They said to him, they're not asking you to quit attending church. They're not asking you to give up your faith. They're just asking you to give up your membership in the youth group. And surely, the price that you'll pay if you don't is too great a price to pay. And the students held a caucus. Their conclusion was, we will not give up our membership in the youth group, regardless of the cost. The fellow who was telling this story was an American who happened to be with the group, and he said, I came away humbled and ashamed. Let me tell you, in those young people, there's good ground, divine courage, and from them will come some of the great men and women of tomorrow, because God will honor that. The third result of courage is effectiveness. In 1 Samuel, the 14th chapter, verses 6 through 14, is the story where Jonathan 
said to his armor bearer, let us go over and go up to these Philistines because it doesn't make any difference to God to deliver by many or by few. Let's see what we can do. The armor bearer said, boss, whatever's in your heart suits me. Lead on, I'm with you. And they climbed up the cliff where the two armies were facing each other to the Philistines. They began to slay them. The Philistines got confused, began to run. The rest of the army came and uh, a great victory was, was had because somebody had courage and that courage led to effectiveness. David went out to meet Goliath. That young man went out with a sling and finally hit him between the eyes. Somebody said that Goliath was heard to say as he fell, nothing like that ever entered my mind before. <laughs> Brave men are effective men. Another result of courage is stick-to-itiveness. Stick-to-itiveness. I don't know if that's a good word, but you understand what I mean. There are three kinds of courage. There's a courage that nerves you in starting the climb, the mount of success rising sheer. And when you slip back, there's the courage sublime that keeps you from shedding a tear. These two kinds of courage, I give you my word, are worthy of courage, but then uh, you'll not reach the summit unless you've the third, the courage to try it again. And perhaps tonight, as we've met together, we've learned something about where courage comes from and what hinders it, some of the results of cowardice and some of the results of courage. You in New Zealand have had more than your share of great people. We could talk of Sir Edmund Hillary, of Lord Rutherford, of Sir Keith Park, of Catherine Mansfield, of Dr. William Pickering, Doris Gorton, Sir Bryant Barrett Bowes, R.A. Laidlaw, Cobber Kane, and many others. The question tonight is, where is America going and where is New Zealand going? Dr. Billy Graham recently said, As I travel throughout the world, I am more and more aware of two things. First, the world is moving rapidly towards a climax. As a prominent senator said recently, in the history of the human race, the next five years, he said, will be the most critical in the history of the human race. Dr. Graham goes on to say, Second, there is an unparalleled spiritual hunger. Before us today are some of the greatest opportunities for evangelism in the history of the Christian church. The call today is for Christian heroes and heroines who are not afraid to be different, who are willing to speak a word for Christ, who are willing to live by the undiluted values of Christian morality, who are willing to do it in the pagan atmosphere and society in which we find ourselves surrounded by lewdness and pornography and profanity. And you know this may be a, a higher form of bravery, really, than that of any battlefield, to face ridicule and sarcasm and sneering disdain for what you believe to be right, the fight for goodness, the fight for truth, the fight for right, fighting the battle first in our own hearts and souls, seeking God's help to overcome our particular temptations, 
for the sake of peace, for the sake of our nation, for our own sake, and for Christ's sake? Where are the great men and the great women today? They'll be with us. God will raise them up when we as a people decide to obey the admonition of God when he said if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land May God give us the grace to respond to that promise. Shall we pray? And Father, tonight, as a prayer, I would offer up the first verse of God defend New Zealand, God of nations at thy feet, in the bonds of love we meet. Hear our voices, we entreat. God, defend our free land. Guard Pacific's triple star from the shafts of strife and war. Make her praises heard afar. God, defend New Zealand. And tonight, as we consider this great country, Lord, that you have given us, as we consider the priceless privilege that you've given us of being a part. I believe with all my heart that there are those here tonight who would share with me, Father, the burden of revival for New Zealand.